0: Hello and welcome to Dairy Digressions, the new podcast of the American Dairy Science Association, the Journal of Dairy Science, and JDS Communications. I'm Dr. Matthew Lucy, editor in chief of JDS Communications, and I'll be your host. On this podcast, I'll speak with some of the top minds in the dairy world to explore fresh insights and dive into broad discussions on research, philosophy, trends, and new ways of looking at the science of dairy foods and dairy production. We'll definitely uncover some interesting science-related tidbits along the way. If you enjoy Dairy digressions or have any feedback for us, please let us know at ADSA at ADSA.org. Make sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on whatever platform you're listening on and spread the word to a friend or colleague. Today, we have with us Dr. Jan Dijkstra from Wageningen University in the Netherlands, and we are going to talk about farming and the environment in the Netherlands. Jan is an associate professor in the Department of Animal Science. He's a prolific researcher in dairy nutrition at Wageningen and a member of the JDS Club 100, meaning that he has authored or co-authored over 100 papers in the Journal of Dairy Science. The Netherlands is the world's second largest food exporter, second only to the United States, and gets this done with a total land area that ranks 22nd in the European Union approximately the Netherlands is approximately the size of the state of Maryland in the United States or Vancouver Island in Canada. Producing so much food within a small land area has put the environmental impact of farming front and center for this tiny country. We'll unpack all that and explore what science has to offer in today's podcast. Welcome Jan.
1: Hi Matt, great to be here.
0: It's fantastic to have you here. So I wanted to start with the numbers, okay? It's true you live in a small country. bear. Yeah,
1: Yeah, indeed. It's a small country and uh, many people and also uh, quite a bit of livestock over here. Uh, Cows, pigs, poultry, yeah.
0: So I was reading, so first of all, 17 and a half million people, that doesn't seem like a lot, but when you, that's in terms of density, that's second in the European Union in terms of the density of people.
1: Yeah. So it's pretty dense.
0: Yeah. And at the same time, okay. 1.6 million dairy cows, right? Now for you U.S. people and that equates to somewhere between the number of cows in the state of California and the number of cows in Wisconsin. So you don't have as many as California, but you got more cows than Wisconsin. Uh just toss in 12 million pigs just for the heck of it, okay? And so in America we have 70 million pigs. You just toss in 12 million. And you're doing this again, as I mentioned in the introduction in a land area at approximately the size of Maryland. You're a little bit larger than Maryland. Okay. Which would be considered a very small, uh, state in the United States. Okay. And so, um, I didn't, I just didn't get this. I was telling, uh, we were talking about it the other day, you know, when you grow up in America, you know, I guess we say the Netherlands or Holland, you know, windmills and tulips and, you know, and I don't know what else we learn about that, but that's what we get. (laughs) That's the information we get, you know. And so, um, but we're going to unpack that. But in dairy digressions, what we do is we kind of start learning a little bit about you and then we'll kind of work our way through the different things. So um, I'm assuming you're Dutch, you're born in the Netherlands?
1: I was born in the Netherlands, yeah. I was born in... uh... In a town called Assen, which is the capital of a province called Dren- Drenthe, yeah, um, somewhere in the north of uh, of the country.
0: So, is that a big dairy region in there?
1: Um, not really. Um, my surname is uh, is Dijkstra, and uh, that that makes it clear to at least to Dutch people that I'm from the province of Friesland. Ah, uh, yeah. Friesland is the dairy uh, province of the Netherlands, basically. So, you know, my my parents were actually the first of their large families to move out of Friesland. So my, you know, my, my family on my father and mother's side, they, this, most of them still live in, in Friesland. And my parents were the first to move out to uh, another province. As my dad always jokes, he said, I wanted to develop the rest of the Netherlands outside Friesland.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, is Friesland the region of the Netherlands that's below sea level? I'm just trying to get my mind around this.
1: Uh, no, not really. Oh, there are obviously parts in Friesland that are below sea level, but Friesland is from origin uh, also parts above sea level. Uh, you know, it's not not major polders that are below sea level, like okay. in north of South Holland, for example.
0: Now we're going to talk about climate today, and we're going to talk about greenhouse gases and stuff. But is and this is a this is an aside and it's a digression at least, but are you guys talking a lot about sea level rise as well in the Netherlands or not?
1: Well, a lot, but yeah, yeah, sure. We're, we're In general, there's, there's worries about climate change and what it means for the Netherlands. Obviously, sea level rises are a major element that mm-hmm. we are uh, talking about and how to protect our own country against it. And obviously, we have a long history of uh, dealing with, uh, water and high levels of water etc so there's also a general tendency in the country that says okay we'll solve that problem as well we've always dealt with water and we're going to solve uh, rising sea levels as well yeah so what do you have a s can you just what
0: i don't know how many square kilometers do you does the country have that's actually below sea level is it is it is it Ooh. at the country or A third of the country? To
1: be honest, I don't know, Matt. Uh, Probably a third is my best guess. But yeah, I should have to look it up.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you do think a lot about Water and sea level and yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it's talking a lot about water. It's also the other way around, eh? Hey? Because of climate change, we've experienced a couple of very dry summers, and mm-hmm. obviously that's the other way around. Um, groundwater levels are uh, decreasing. How about our drinking water, etc.? So it's also making trying to keep the water where it should be yeah. for a longer period of time, that it right. doesn't rush off so quickly. the sea that we maintain enough water for the crops and for the also for drinking water etc yeah
0: so tell me how you got interested in dairy cattle Mm
1: -hmm. yeah um i'm one of the probably few dairy researchers that wasn't born or raised on a dairy farm
0: oh my gosh
1: okay i had that
0: totally wrong i was like this guy is a dutch dairyman
1: not true not true. No, no. My, you know, my family in Friesland, they, there were lots of people there with farms. And, and I was interested in that, obviously. But all my life, uh, young life, I've always wanted to become a veterinary surgeon. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in the Netherlands, the, the vet school is in a town called Utrecht, which is like 50 kilometers uh, west of Bageningen. Yeah. Uh, so our vet school in Netherlands is not linked to the uh, animal sciences. uh, uh groups, yes. Right? Okay. Um, And at that time, uh, there were plenty of people who wanted to study uh, veterinary sciences, and it was simply a lottery at that time. So there were like uh, more than 1,000 people interested in joining it, but only 150 or so could uh, actually uh, be allocated to the study. And it's a lottery, and I was uh, afterwards, looking afterwards, lucky not to have entered the Utrecht system, but that's only afterwards. eh? So I was... uh, unlucky at the time to not have been selected and then you I started my study of animal sciences in in Wageningen
0: yeah yeah Um,
1: but I really liked it very much in Wageningen so after a year I did participate again in this lottery and it was actually selected at the time oh wow yeah and all my friends I have many friends you know studying here all in the same position uh, not uh, in Utrecht always wanted to be in Utrecht they all thought I was mad to say, no, I don't want to go to Utrecht. I like Wageningen too much. (laughs) So the study was really, I I really loved the the study in Ragenhagen.
0: So I have a question. Again, it's sort of a, a digression to a certain extent. This lottery, okay, in America, we train mainly women to be veterinarians at this point. Okay, so uh, in animal science, oh, we're probably 90% women in animal science because they're pre-vets. The vet school is mostly women. I taught uh, a class in large animal, uh, not a class. I gave a lecture in large animal. There was a rotation. There was um, 16 women and one uh, gentleman in that class. Okay, so when you do the lottery, how do they do they balance gender Do they still do the lottery or how does that all work
1: they, they still do the lottery and um, they try to get people in there that are interested in indeed large animals like okay. the, the cows the pigs etc because yeah. same as you just told me a lot of uh, women interested in the study but they generally tend to be more interested in like the companion animals and horses
0: okay so okay, yeah there's
1: a there's becoming a shortage of uh, veterinarians for like cattle and and, and pigs and that's what they try to stimulate
0: yeah we're in the same i'm sure you're aware uh, uh bovine practitioners is is i just saw a tweet on that they're just very concerned about the flow of large animal uh veterinarians into the profession so it sounds like europe is somewhat similar with that respect to that yeah
1: yeah same same here um it's seen as a, a very tough job obviously physically demanding lots of working hours um it's generally not seen as a nice job to be in uh, from that perspective
0: yeah friend yeah oh, yeah it's interesting it's interesting you know, I tell people that I, I really, even in gra- among graduate students here in America, we get mostly women in animal science, very few men. And, and so I tell people I work mainly with women. You know, that's who I work with. You know, I teach women. I work with women. And it, it's an interesting, you never would have predicted that when we started down this road. No,
1: nope. Nope. same here. I just, I just came back from my class uh, this afternoon. It's, it's around, um, I think it's uh, 70% women, 30% men.
0: Yeah, it's those... Those kind of numbers. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. when you're so you are a scientist, you're an associate professor. I'm uh, The European system is a bit of a mystery to me. You have, I don't know, lecturers. Maybe you don't in the Netherlands. I mean, I don't even. But tell me. So you got your Ph.D. I see you postdoc in the U.K. at some point yeah. and then yeah, you I come did. back. To yeah. uh, and I and I hesitate to even try to say it too many times, uh, you know. You know how I learned how to say "Wageningen" is, but I still say it wrong. Is I had to listen to it on a YouTube video, and I still can't say it right. But the uh, for I'm, I'm close. I'm not too bad. Uh, no, no,
1: no. It's it's quite understandable. Math. It's it's excellent. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I was going to, I was going to say to all you podcast listeners that don't know what university we're talking about, it's the one that starts with W and all the research comes out of, okay, it's that one, you know, but the, uh. <laughs> But so you came back and do do they have the same system there? You start out as an assistant professor, associate, tenure and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. 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 It's a bit different that uh, you don't if if you don't want to, there's no real need to like go up in the ranks, if you like, um, to become a, a professor is uh really more difficult in uh, it used to be that only the leader of a big group like i'm from the animal nutrition group and the leader of that group was would be the only one to become a professor but uh, in the past couple of years that has changed now you can also become what they call a personal professorship and that can be done it's 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 indeed a lot of work to do but it it is possible now but otherwise it would be assistant professor associate professor and uh, usually that will be both doing research as well as uh, education.
0: So, do they have splits? We talk about splits like 60 40. Is it this? What, what is your split for research yeah, teaching?
1: Split, I don't have it real official, but the split is roughly 50 50.
0: Ah, yeah. So, you're expected to teach classes then?
1: Yeah, teach classes. So, uh, like I said, I've just returned from uh, a modeling class with uh, 40 uh, students. So, quite nice, great group. Mathematical modeling. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, mathematical modeling. So that's obviously a challenge yeah, to get students into the mathematics. Because,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, the, the way they teach these days mathematics at high school is a bit different from uh, when I went to high school. Yeah. So it can be a bit uh, tough now and then to get them into that. But then we, you have the software yeah, that does most of the mathematics for you so that they don't read a real uh, understanding of the mathematics but they yeah we work in differential equations to describe changes in like digestion or metabolism of nutrients etc oh, um, and they need to have a bit of background on that and in my classes we deal with different topics so um, we can deal with models about nutrient metabolism in dairy cattle but this afternoon for example we had a class on uh, calcium and phosphorus dynamics in layers mm-hmm. so wow. calcium being utilized by the, for the eggshell mainly and in- to losses of phosphorus from bone level. Yeah. But I always try to tell them, and also what does it mean for other species, like calcium phosphorus dynamics, obviously very important also for dairy cattle in early lactation, right, with milk fever, et cetera.
0: Yeah, so does the, um, you also teach dairy nutrition, then I'm, I imagine.
1: Yeah, also. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing also uh, other species uh, nutrition.
0: So you teach dairy nutrition. And then would you would you rank when you talk about the, see, at the University of Missouri, we have the Ag, Ag School, Agricultural College, but we have lots of colleges. And I'm sharing a, I'm imagining at Wageningen that there's also different colleges, for example. Does the Ag School at Wageningen, is, is that a big one? Is that the reason that this university exists? Or are there yeah. are there lots of different I mean, do you have engineering, arts, and science? I don't know, whatever.
1: It's it's uh, it's linked to all to life sciences, what they call these days, and it can be anything: uh, human nutrition, for example, uh, environmental aspects, uh, but also social studies. That um, but somehow it must be related to life sciences.
0: Oh, to, to, to be sh- there.
1: Yeah, yeah. so traditionally it was really uh, the traditional agriculture, so to say, but on top of that we have those environmental studies, soil studies, uh, you mentioned it, but somehow related to still to how to use, you know, Uh. nature, agriculture, farming. Oh, uh, so that's
0: a nice focus then for your university, so most of the people are in that realm, sounds like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it's really the only university that delivers those type of topics. Uh, hey, if you go to uh, law or whatever, you have various uh, different universities in the Netherlands, but to go to life sciences, basically, Wageningen is the place to be.
0: I don't think we have, you know, I'm a Cornell guy, and, you know, Cornell at all, you know, it's known as an ag school in New York State, you know, but not. there's a lot more than ag at Cornell, you know, and most land grants have lots of different, things we do. You know, yeah. that's different. That's a different sort of model, I think, which is interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, traditionally, it was completely act, and obviously now um, it's, it's like nature studies, environmental studies as well, but we, we call it then somehow yeah. linked to life studies, basically.
0: So do you you run a lab? Obviously, you've got this teaching component, but do you also have a lab component? Do you do the same stuff we do, grad students, postdocs, the, all that stuff?
1: Yeah, so um, we tend not to uh, term it our own lab or something. That's, that's so that's a bit different from your North American situation. Oh. Uh, we feel, or we're working in a group like the animal nutrition group with various associate assistant professors over there. We share the facilities completely. We share lots of the facilities with other groups, uh, adaptation group or other groups within the, uh, the animal sciences. And we specialize like I'm a rumen nutrition uh, person, but we also have a pig nutrition or poultry nutrition or a companion animals uh, specialist over there. Mm-hmm. And then in, in our system, we hardly have postdocs. So we work a lot with PhD students that that's our major uh, goal basically the phd students as well as the msc students but then our msc students it's different from your msc students that our msc students for example do only a major for only six months period of time their major research
0: wow okay
1: and the rest is mainly courses or an internship of a couple of months so the msc is basically two years on top of a BSc period of three years. Our, yes. our typical study is is five years.
0: Okay. So, do you are you expected as a associate professor like in the United States? It's all about getting grant money, getting funding oh, yeah. to fund research. Yeah. This is yeah. all part of the plan as well. Write yeah. proposals, yeah. attract oh, yeah. funding, and you yes. might you might get you might write a proposal to the European Union, for example, or
1: yeah. or maybe
0: yeah. the 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 government of the Netherlands, or is it just European Union?
1: No, 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 it's European Union. Uh, it's, it's uh, those are always the very big projects with uh, lots of groups in there, so yeah, quite quite big. Uh, we cannot get money from the government if, if on fundamental research you go to the uh, research, the Dutch research organization that hands out that money. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, chances to get it are pretty low, <laughs> yeah. yeah, success rate is low, yeah, uh, and we also have. A lot of our research is is linked with, say, feed industry, and right. often in a way that our government sponsors a part of the financial costs, and the feed industry sponsors the other part. Like, right. uh, often our our, our um, research is then fifty percent sponsored by the government, and fifty percent by feed industry, which is attractive to both, right? Because uh, you get uh, often research that can be utilized in practice right and for feed industry it's attractive to go to those phd positions because part of it will be sponsored uh, by the government and they get right. all this new knowledge for not too much investment financial investment for themselves right so that
0: i i think this sort of transitions into what's happening in the local dairy space in the netherlands and let's I, I, I must apologize okay i I really wasn't paying close attention to uh, the situation in the Netherlands. What I knew about the Netherlands, I talked about earlier, but we also know that uh, uh, Dutch farmers are very famous in America, okay they're famous for being outstanding farmers. It's synonymous with with the ability to start with very few cows and very few resources and build huge successful, economically successful uh, dairies and well-run dairies. So that is the image of the Dutch dairyman, okay, in America. Very positive. And I I just hadn't put it all together until I saw an article, it might have been the New York Times or somewhere else where they said, you know, the government is looking to reduce cow numbers. I mean, actively reduce the number of Dairy cows in the Netherlands, and I was like, "Wow, that's interesting." I mean, that, I guess that's one way to mitigate the environmental impact is yeah. get rid of the cows or get rid yeah. of whatever. Is that yeah. is that front and center right now in your industry? This this notion that we're going to get rid of some of these farm animals, or
1: yeah, that that that's very much uh, a talking issue these days in the Netherlands in the, in, in the sector, uh, all the livestock sector in the Netherlands. And that the reason for that at the moment is simply the, uh, what we call the nitrogen crisis. Mm -hmm. It's, there's a surplus of uh, nitrogen from various sources, but including, uh, livestock surplus of nitrogen on nature areas and that has negative effects in terms of biodiversity in terms of different plants that you see there are birds that uh, have weakened bones uh, all kinds of things oh, and they want okay. to reduce the nitrogen deposition especially on nature areas
0: okay so the first thing i would say is i didn't even know you guys had nature areas it just <laughs> looks like it's all farms okay so somewhere there's some wildlife
1: Oh yeah that there there is eh we we even have the, that's a hot issue as well we even have four years ago or so the, the wolf coming back in the Netherlands no the wolf it's a, yeah yeah which is a major issue because we haven't had a wolf in i don't know 100 years i'm not sure when the last wolf was oh, shot that's fantastic right and now uh, obviously uh, we're not used to that the, the as a predator so we have to somehow protect like the sheep Mm-hmm. But those wolves kill a lot of sheep in, in the Netherlands. So farmers are really worried about it with yeah. uh, introduction of, of the wolf. But it's protected by European law. So you can't shoot them, basically. Yeah, yeah. Unless they're really causing a major problem and you can't do anything else, then you can shoot them. But so far, none have been shot in the Netherlands. And farmers are really worried about it. They also attack cattle, for example.
0: Do they? Where did they come? They come out of Germany, or where did they yeah. come out of?
1: Yeah, they come from Germany, and then they spread uh, also in uh, the south. It's Belgium, also in Belgium now, yeah. for example. So, yeah, they find a nice living area over yeah. here in uh, in 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 nature, but yeah. obviously attacking also prey that is more easy for them to get.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't own cattle, so it's not fair for me to talk too much about it. But I. I for me personally, I love, I love wolves. I love that. I love that stuff, you know, and, and, and as you know, there's been very, and it's, it's not fair for me to, I don't own cattle. Okay. So I don't, I'm not impacted economically by the wolf, but, but there's been a many introductions and, you know, if, if, if you don't shoot them, they, they tend to do quite well and hopefully they attack wild animals, not your anim- domestic. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and they can really be a benefit to for diversity in wild animals, right? If okay. if they attack uh, the wild animals, so yeah, that, that that's a major benefit. But obviously, they can may also attack sheep in particular. Yes, and then you see this division between like city people and people in the rural areas. Right, the city people say, "Hey, you have to uh, protect your sheep with 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 dogs or keep them inside yeah. uh, during night, etc." Yeah. You know, and for the farmers, obviously that. Uh, Sheep farming is already, it doesn't give you a lot of money. There's simply no way to invest in that or to put in all this effort each day to get your sheep inside or to train a dog to protect uh, against uh, predators, etc. So it's a major division again between people in the cities and people in rural areas.
0: I had no idea. I had no idea that this was going on in the Netherlands. That is absolutely fascinating. You mentioned the nitrogen. Now, I was thinking when you said there's a nitrogen crisis, I was thinking nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. But when you say nitrogen, are you talking atmospheric nitrogen or are you talking groundwater nitrogen or all of the above?
1: Uh, groundwater nitrogen it may also be a problem and yeah? nitrate in uh, in water, but the major issue these days is simply nitrogen on nature areas because by law, European law and we've committed to that, you are not allowed to deteriorate nature areas and that means basically if you have an activity that emits nitrogen, therefore deposits nitrogen on the nature area, that space is not allowed because nature air will deteriorate from it if it's vulnerable to too much nitrogen. And therefore, uh, lots of projects in the Netherlands are at the moment at a standstill, like major, uh, housing, new housing, that process of building a new house and all this traffic, etc., mm-hmm. emits nitrogen. So that's not it allowed. Does? Or, yeah. Yeah. It does. Oh it's my. only a little, but even a little extra is. Um, You have to ask a permit for it. So the the amount, it's ridiculously low. It's only 0.07 grams of nitrogen per hectare per year,
0: which is already
1: 0.07 that already has to make you to ask for a permit. All right. And then if there's at the moment, a lot of it is at a standstill because the nitrogen levels are too high. All the judges, when they go to court, hey, the nature groups or whatever is fighting a, a new farm or a new road or mm-hmm. new housing as activity, they, they go to court and then court says, yeah, we need to protect nature. You can't do something that uh, deteriorates nature. So, uh, Whoa.
0: yeah, that's, that's fascinating. You know, uh, as you can imagine, in America, where we are land rich in America, land rich. I mean, again, we're talking about a country the size of this slightly larger than Maryland. Boy, I tell you one thing about America, if you just leave that, I don't know, 50,000 square kilometers alone, nature will do a pretty good job of taking over, you know? And uh, and um, so we, I'm, I'm sure we don't manage our natural areas as aggressively as as, as your country is managing those natural areas, you know? And the nitrogen situation is all new to me, but everything is new to me i'm you know i'm a reproductive physiologist, so everything is new but I thought we would uh i w- i thought we would talk about uh greenhouse gases and and um because I know you've done a lot of research on that this is yeah. this is front and center you don't think about it, but it's actually front and center in the United States as well, and we we hope to turn sort of Carbon neutrality or greenhouse gas neutrality into a wind for the dairy industry, but it's yeah. going to take some work. This morning I was listening to Progressive Dairy Podcast, which is uh, Progressive Dairy has a podcast and I just really enjoy it. And they had uh, Mike Haddon from uh, the Dairy Innovation Center and, a, and a Susan Vold from Minnesota, dairy farmer. And it was all about this question of okay, so how are we going to achieve they called it greenhouse gas neutrality instead of carbon neutrality
1: oh,
0: right. yeah. Uh, by 2050. And I know that's near and dear to your heart, you know, and I, again, I want to give a shout out to Progressive Dairy Podcast and the host, uh, Jen Coyne this morning, and also Kimmy Devaney and Peggy Coffin. Those guys do a great job of just, it's fascinating. You know, we think of Progressive Dairy as a real sort of management kind of magazine, but these guys are you know american dairy farmers and american dairy industry is 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 talking a lot about the same things you guys talk about but of course you guys are i would argue it's a it's extremely pressing issue for the netherlands whereas in america it's a coming pressing issue i don't know if that's fair or not okay but that's the way i think Do you want to supercharge your dairy knowledge and accelerate your professional development? Then you need to attend the 2023 annual meeting of the American Dairy Science Association from June 25th to 28th. This year we are in Canada's capital city, the beautiful and historic Ottawa, located in the picturesque province of Ontario. From symposia to poster sessions, networking events to hallway conversations, the ADSA annual meeting has you covered. Follow the meeting in real time with our special episodes of Dairy Digressions recording at the meeting. To learn more about the meeting and see a complete list of scientific sessions and symposia presentations, go to adsa.org and be sure to join ADSA and register soon to receive discounted meeting fees. So one of the things we try to do in this podcast is we talk about different articles that I've seen in the Journal of Dairy Science. And I saw you had this, this article on, I call it, uh, three NOP. You call it three OP, three nitro oxypropanol and yeah. its effect on methane production and yield in cattle. And what you had there was a, was a meta, meta analysis. And I think when I came through graduate school, we, we learned about uh, menensin, okay? And menensin yeah. also affects methane production. Menensin is a different molecule. It works in a different manner. Can you just tell us a little bit about this 3-NOP, maybe about its mechanism of action, and then kind of summarize, you know, if you feed this stuff, what what's the take-home message of feeding this 3-NOP on methane?
1: Yeah, So 3NOP is uh, an ester of nitrate and propane uh, diol, and it uh, it has a shape, a molecular shape, that is similar to that of uh, methyl coenzyme M, and that's uh, a cofactor that is uh, involved in uh, methyl coenzyme M reductase, and that's the, the final and major step in methanogenesis in the rumen. And that enzyme is a a nickel enzyme and it needs to have the nickel in the one oxidation state. Now, if this 3NP binds to the uh, reductase, it places the electrons in uh, a position that changes that nickel ion in Mm. uh, such a state that the enzyme becomes inactive, Mm. right? So... It's basically, it's neatly done by the company from uh, molecular docking studies that they derived this molecule and found out that it's uh, doing this powerful job in, in, in reducing methane. Mm. But it, it's a temporary effect. So the uh, methanogens, they have uh, an, an easy repair system with a hydrogen dependent chaperone uh, process in which they can regenerate the enzyme basically again. So after this 3 np has been metabolized in the room and it goes pretty fast, you're, you're back to normal, mm. which is, for example, a problem if you have like uh, animals grazing a lot and only, for example, come in a couple of hours a day to eat the feed that contains mm-hmm. 3 Well, All the time during grazing or most of the time during grazing, the molecule is already gone and the system has repaired itself so it's not active right. so the study that we did was only in confinement systems basically where the phenopy is added uh, you know in in the diet itself so right. every chew every bite will have it in it yeah.
0: so quick aside here we think of confinement dairies oftentimes in america and in and and I just kind of popped in my head that you mentioned uh grazing cows but also coming inside to eat. And as I remember, there there are laws in the Netherlands that say a cow must graze for a certain amount of time, or is that no, not correct? No,
1: that that's what uh some people perhaps would like to see. We have an, we have like in, in a parliament, we have a party for animals,
0: uh-huh. which is very
1: outspoken uh in, in that direction, for example. Okay. Um but no, it's, it's not law. Uh, you can have cows inside all year long. Uh, but like 80% of the farmers practice some form of grazing. And the usual type of grazing is, say, in only summertime, obviously, but uh, six to hour, eight hours a day grazing outside. Okay. And the rest of the day inside eating whatever, there is grass silage, maize silage, uh, the concentrates obviously. And that's then for the 3NOP business, that's the time that the cows will also eat and consume 3NOP.
0: So that's, yeah. So the fact that they're, so while they're outside, that their methane production may go up because they haven't consumed the 3NOP Yeah, And I guess you also have to make sure that cows eat regular meals, which I I think they typically do, but you need to understand that interval between meals and dosing and that sort of
1: thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's indeed uh, very important. Obviously when they've just eaten a meal, go outside for the first one, two hours, the molecule is still uh, pretty active, but you really Mm -hmm. see after three hours, the effect probably is already, is already gone. Right. So during that last part of the grazing for sure, the methane uh, is being uh, emitted, no 3 p. So what we need in that situation probably is to have a slow-release way of having that uh, 3NOP being released uh-huh. in the
0: human. So the, they make those little slow-release sticks for something uh, to treat ketosis. I can't remember molecule that is uh, – I, I, I can't remember, I just – old age but they do rem- make those slow release boluses for the rumen is that the vision then for 3NOP? Yeah
1: I, uh, that that might be something they're looking uh, at indeed um, either slow release that releases for weeks on end so that you can have mm-hmm. animals also those animals that don't come in to be milked for example but are for s- several weeks outside or you have this slow release type that will release it uh, over a period of say 12 hours or something and as long as it's when they're back inside at milking and eat a new dose of the feed with a slow release in it, you're also in business basically.
0: Yeah. So I was kind of, I was looking at this article and reading it. And as as I recall, you're getting about a 30% reduction in methane production with three NOP.
1: Yeah. That depends what we found in our meta analysis. The the first thing it depends on obviously is a dose. The more you give, the greater reduction makes sense. Right. Um, Yes. But, what we also found, and that's probably uh, really relevant also for the Netherlands is it depends also in particular on the level of fiber in a diet, the more fiber in diet you have, the lower the efficacy of this three nop And that was also for us, the, the trigger to do this meta analysis. We we've done a couple of years ago, an experiment in which we measured methane emissions on three different diets that differed in the ratio of grass silage to maize silage so basically the ratio of fiber to starch if you like mm-hmm. and we found that uh, 3NP is much more effective on the uh, maize silage rich diet up to over 40 percent uh, methane reduction and well, that trigger is also okay. Uh, apparently, the basal diet has an impact on how efficient 3NP is. Let's look by a meta-analysis to get all the data that's available from all the experiments that have been done and reported in literature, and and see if we can analyze what are the factors that uh, explain what we call heterogeneity in the response to 3NP. And yes, fiber was one of them, and in certain situations also fat. So more fat in the diet means that 3NOP is less effective.
0: Okay. We, we say in America, no free lunch. Yeah. Okay, so no free lunch. Okay, so let's take a, an effective, let's take an, a 3NOP and I'm, I'm feeding my cows 3NOP. No free lunch. So tell me about effects on milk production, milk composition, other aspects that are going to put a drag on it.
1: Yeah, basically, uh, that, that, that's very limited, uh, Matt. Um, only if you give h- really high doses, but that's higher than uh, the company recommends or is allowed by our European uh, food safety organization. There are no real impacts on milk production, feed intake or uh, milk composition. So oh, yeah. that's also from the other side. I mean, um, when the company started this research, they were hoping, okay, we have less methane that saves energy and methane is energy. <laughs> so more energy will be retained in the animal. So hopefully the animal may produce more milk that the right. price may pay for itself, if you like. Um, but that also didn't <laughs> turn out to be the case. So basically no change in milk production composition, unless you go to really high levels of three NOP. but that's, that's not the target that you, you aim for. So it's just, you know, obviously uh, the company needs to, uh, make a living. So it it costs money. And the way to pay for it, I mean, you can't let a farmer pay for it. So our dairies are interested in producing milk with a lower uh, carbon footprint. And they will give a a small financial incentive to do that. So one way to do that is as a farmer to use 3NOP and therefore have a little extra uh, per liter of milk that you deliver to the dairy. And that's the way... To 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 that it can uh, you know pay for it,
0: so it's going to have to go through some regulatory approval I assume and yeah. human uh, or, or this food safety yeah. type stuff, you know it's not just cows making methane it's manure piles right that make methane yeah. so does okay. this is it the same methanogen the same bacteria that makes. Methane from manure piles, or
1: the same principle, the same, uh, yeah, uh, methanogen types. There are different species in in the manure, but in the end, it's an aer- anaerobic process that uh, produces the methane. And we we do think that uh, should you add the stuff to a manure pile, <laughs> it would at least temporarily also decrease the methane over there. Uh,
0: yeah, it's interesting, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, and also have been studies done. Okay, looking at. Um, does the 3NAP then affect uh, the manure quality, so to say, uh, like right. methane emissions or the fertilizing value in the soil? And yeah. from the studies, only very limited number of studies, but those studies don't show any impact of using 3NAP on like amounts of nitrogen in manure or the availability yeah. of manure or impact on the soil um, uh, processes like nitrogen losses or whatever. So no impact apparently on the manure, which makes sense if you know that, 3 p is pretty rapidly metabolized in the rumen
0: right it would make sense then. yeah it that... makes
1: sense that you don't see in an in, in effect yeah
0: so in, a, in the united states um i think there's a lot of interest in renewable natural gas you know capturing methane from dairy manure and i guess i i wanted to sort of back up for some of our listeners and just explain if that when we think about controlling methane it, it, theoretically the the whole argument behind menensin, which is a different type of sort of mechanism to control methane was to increase feed efficiency or increase e- efficiency because methane uh represents energy loss to the to the animal and and I was always like why does methane represent energy loss and you just got to remember if i can capture methane i can burn it and it makes heat right and that's the whole Concept and the same thing with dairy manure. If we can capture methane and we can burn it and for heat or whatever, you know. And and in America, of course, the the dairies are extremely large. I'm I'm not know how large they get in the Netherlands. We should I should ask you that. What would be a typical dairy? You step foot on typical, not average, typical dairy. How many cows?
1: Yeah, typically is uh, one or ten, one or twenty dairy cows on the farm. What? So that, 110? Uh, 110, Typical? 110, 120.
0: 110 to 120. Yeah,
1: we've also looked at, obviously, uh, methane from uh, manure digesters, uh, but it's, the scale is too small, basically. With yeah. uh, a lot of group of farmers, you have to uh, get uh, those manure digesters right, but it's so right. it's, it's not so practical to do, basically.
0: Yeah, so and uh, Jan knows this, but for our listeners, you know, the average herd size in America is 300, but that's a skewed average. The typical dairy is well over a thousand cows, probably two to three, six, ten, that sort. And when you get into that that scale, these renewable natural gas projects are are, are feasible. I don't know if they're profitable. They're feasible. And, but, you know, it's interesting when you, I listen to a lot of podcasts on this, and I think the important point they make is if you're going to put in a manure digester, you have to have someone to manage the manure digester, you can't just stick it in there and it's a, it's a science, right? It,
1: it's technically very demanding and huh? a lot can go wrong. So. <laughs>
0: yeah. And when it goes wrong, you've got a lot of, you know, what to deal with. Right. So the, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So the, um, so the NLP story I thought was really exciting and I really enjoyed reading that. And I know, um, we're going to talk about another paper, uh, that you co-authored, and that has to do with meeting the, uh, climate goals. I guess maybe, I don't know if they're climate goals. I guess they are climate goals for 2030 and 2050. And uh, before we talk about that paper, I'll uh, I'll give you a little break here and I'll just interject a paper that I saw that I found really sort of interesting. But I think it speaks to what we're trying to accomplish here in terms of cattle and the, and the future of animal agriculture in general and on on planet earth and uh this paper i saw is a, is a paper published in the proceedings of the national academy of science which is the same place you published your paper and uh the the title of the paper is the global biomass of wild animals and it's authored by uh, a group uh, led by uh lord greenspoon and it was published in 2023. And, and uh, I saw the reason I picked up on it is they highlighted it in science magazine. And so it's this whole premise. So if you talk about biomass, which is, I don't know, biomass of, of mammals, they're not talking about biomass of plants and insects, they're just focusing on mammals. And uh, I was like, well, that's kind of interesting, you know, how much what's out there. And What was fascinating about the whole story is if you talk about wild terrestrial animals, okay, mammals, like the wolves, the lions, the elephants, the deer, okay, the the wild mammals out there, 20 megatons of biomass of these wild mammals, okay, led, in fact, by the number one wild mammal out there in terms of biomass, I don't know if you have these in the Netherlands. If you don't, we'll send you some of ours. Uh, the number one mammal in terms of wild biomass is the white tailed deer. All right, yeah. Do you have white tailed deer in the Netherlands? Do you have red deer?
1: What do you got? Uh, uh, Road ro- ro- deer. Road yeah. deer, okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure they're on the list, okay, of these things. <laughs> And, and the <laughs> the uh the deer the uh, the, the even foot mammals that'd be artiodactyla and that's you know the deer and the mo- roe deer and the whitetails uh account for 49% of the wild biomass 20 megatons now if you look at wild marine mammals okay so there's your seals and your whales and uh they have 40 megatons of biomass which is so there? there's more wild marine mammals than in terms of biomass. And the whales are big. The whales are big than terrestrial, which I thought, well, makes, I guess it makes sense. There's, remember when we learned in school, there's, I don't know, three quarters of the earth is ocean. And I That's guess right. there's a lot yep. of stuff swimming out there, mammals swimming yeah. out there, right? Yeah. Okay. So remember, wild animals, 20, wild marines, 40, four, almost 400 megatons of human beings okay well that's 10 times wild marine mammals 20 times wild terrestrial mammals okay and you know i you knew that you knew human population was huge but but then again there's a lot of people
1: right there's a lot of people and we've expanding over the past the centuries a lot of very yeah right
0: so so far 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 but then the, the 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 double thing Okay, humans, 390 megatons. According to this analysis, cattle, 416 megatons oh, wow. of biomass, cattle oh, wow. alone. Okay, that doesn't include cattle by far much greater than all the domestic's other domestic species. So in combination between people and cattle, almost 800 megatons of biomass far exceeding anything found in in the wild you know and i thought to myself it's fascinating right It's it first of all it demonstrates this link between human population growth and the growth of ruminants which i think is pretty well documented right people they like their cattle right meat and milk right no question you know, about it you know and so
1: making use of the fiber added that we humans can't use basically that that's the fascinating the
0: Fascinating, and that that goes on to your paper, okay? And your paper, uh, which you also published in PNAS, the title of your paper: "Full adoption of the most effective strategies to mitigate methane emissions by ruminants can help meet the 1.5 degrees C target by 2030, but not 2050." Okay, so can you can you explain why can we meet this by 2030? Oh first of all explain now we're moving beyond free ONLP because you talk about lots of different strategies.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we, we, we evaluated in total almost a hundred different strategies and, and did a large if you like, meta-analysis on that. And the first surprising thing was basically that the majority of those strategies simply were not significant or only had a very small reduction. So we see a lot, I also asked a lot by journalists, for example, that some company or someone comes with this, you know, silver bullet and this is going to use methane and then apparently it's only tested, for example, in vitro and not in animals itself. So there's a lot of different strategies out there which are proposed that are simply are not effective. And that's one of the take home messages of that paper of a very large group of researchers involved. But there are also, luckily, also a couple of very effective strategies. 3NP uh, is one of them, but you can also think, for example, on a better quality roughage, does help to reduce methane. Not so much in the absolute amount of methane per animal, but because the animal is more productive, if you spread it out on higher amounts of product, the intensity, methane intensity, uh, will lower, so less methane per unit of growth or per unit of milk, for example. Uh, or there are um, other strategies like uh, nitrate is, is a strategy that is very promising here, or forages that contains tenants, that's also a very interesting one, so that's also um, one that can possibly be utilised also in countries that have a lower income, have less possibility, so to say, to use Uh, more expensive uh, feed additives. So also very applicable to them. So in the end, we ended up with only eight effective strategies out of the almost 100 that fulfilled our criteria of a significant amount of methane reduction while not reducing the production of the animal.
0: Because that has its own downside, reduced production and, and... You go in the sure. wrong direction. You didn't, but in this article, I just noticed, and I want to make sure I follow up on some things. But in this article, and I want, don't let me forget to follow up on 2030 versus 2050 because we haven't answered that question. Yeah. But yeah. answer a question for me. Okay. So we've talked about methane, we've talked about CO2, and we talked about nitrous oxide. Okay. I am continue to be confused about which one is the real bad guy. Okay, they say methane is bad, but it turns over fast. CO2 is bad, it stays in the atmosphere longer. Nitrous oxide, I have no clue. Which one's the bad guy? All bad?
1: They're definitely all bad, obviously, but our fossil fuel addiction is in my view, the most serious one, because indeed carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for such a long time. Uh, methane as a molecule, obviously, is much more powerful in as, as a greenhouse yeah. gas. Uh, but like you say, that it it's got a half time of only 12 yes. years. And that means if we can reduce methane to a certain level, we will manage to, in the end, not to have the methane concentration in the atmosphere. Increase huh? because then the breakdown of methane can keep the same pace as the levels that we uh, emit. So, methane needs to come down. If you can really decrease methane, the methane levels in the atmosphere will go down. And that's what people call it's wrong, but what they call cooling okay. of the earth. It's not really cooling, uh, there's still this mm-hmm. greenhouse gas there, but compared with a situation that methane constraints mm-hmm. go up, yeah, mm-hmm. it's cooling. Uh, and th- I think that's a very important element that we should strive for to reduce mm-hmm. methane because basically it's also required for the short term, the short term being a couple of decades. also to kind of, if you like, buy us time to also find good solutions to completely get rid of fossil fuel because that's the carbon dioxide that stays in the air for hundreds of years.
0: You mentioned uh, fossil fuels. And I remember I was, reading or speaking with people from Denmark I think it was and they were mentioning their success with offshore windmills yeah. in Denmark and and highly successful in generating energy at least the way the Danes talk now uh in the Netherlands are you also experimenting with offshore windmills
1: for yeah a lot so a lot of offshore windmills in the North Sea yeah that that's delivering the energy but obviously well most of times you have wind on the North Sea so it's a it's a relatively steady source but you, you can't bank on just one source of energy so also like solar panels are a, a very important source of energy we yeah. don't have like water power and uh, nuclear energy is a is basically a no-go in the Netherlands. so uh, yeah. Yeah. but like the, obviously the global situation war ukraine etc has really also made it clear to the eu that we need to be probably not so reliant on other countries for such first necessities as, as energy.
0: It's not simple. I mean, I think in America, we are, as you know, we like our fossil fuels here. Having said that, it's I, I think there's growing understanding that alternative sources of renewable energy have a place in America, you know, and um but we're not there yet. And I always say, I have this saying that uh, in America, people won't get serious about climate change until their flowers don't come up in the springtime, you know, <laughs> and, and when it hits home that hard, right, they're going to yeah. say, oh, we need to think harder. And I think it's starting to be there because I think there's this notion in America that we have real extremes in climate that we haven't seen before you know in the state of missouri i was uh, we all know about the california wildfires but it was so dry in missouri last summer we had a wildfire near columbia missouri that wiped out a small town 20 miles from here and it was a situation where it was so dry uh someone was harvesting they were doing nothing wrong they were harvesting a spark started the wildfire And there was nothing to stop it. And now in Columbia, Missouri, we talk about wildfires. You know, it's unheard of. And it sounds like you've been dry in the Netherlands as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so dry. And uh, like if you go a bit more south, like in Spain, they already have experienced also large fires already in uh, like March, April. Very unusual for that time of year. Very dry and uh, there obviously very worried about high temperatures and how can they then still grow their crops like in Spain in the in the dry yeah. hot areas etc yeah et cetera.
0: It's, it's um so why not 2050 what happens in 2050 that you can't fix 2050 yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, what what happens in twenty fifty is that we expect the world population to still grow. We talked already about a huge amounts of yes. biomass, but that's going to probably go yes. even uh, even higher, Matt. And that increase in in uh, population, together with possibly an increase in wealth of people in Africa, mm-hmm. Asia, that they have more buying power, or also would like to consume more mm-hmm. animal products. That increase in animal Product consumption is probably greater than what we can achieve with methane uh, or, or uh, strategies to to reduce methane. So, if you just would look, we also did it just mm-hmm. for Europe. And for Europe, we can reach that target in 2050 with two of the best strategies. If we imply uh, implicated that, that, then we'll be there. Mm-hmm. But in other global, other areas, this increase in consumption of animal products will be greater than what you can achieve by methane reduction in 2050 so that's also you know uh, an alarm bell Mm -hmm. if you like that we need to do more and think about perhaps also on is it really sustainable to have these levels of animal product consumption by Mm -hmm. by people but also look at more ways to reduce methane even further
0: yeah i think one thing that's At least good news, particularly for dairy, is um, both at the uh, industry level, the academic level, the farm level, we have really smart people that work at all levels of the dairy industry, you know, and I think, I feel like if you put that challenge out there and we all agree this is what we want for our industry, I, I just sort of feel like it can happen. You know, I just feel like the there's a lot of smart people that are talented and care. And um, so, you know, we've never been one as an industry to shy away from, from challenges. Yeah. And, um, and this is another challenge, but it's a real challenge. And so we're going to wrap up now. We've been talking for about an hour and, and um, it's, it's late at night there. I know it's, I I don't know what, what is it eight o'clock or something and uh, some crazy time. And I'm here. Yeah. Uh, around noon in the United States, but I'm gonna—I'm just gonna skip. We—we we always finish off with a few questions. And any, uh, so I'm gonna ask you some questions. Uh, any favorite people, living or dead, science or non-science, that inspired you in your career, that really sort of moved you along?
1: Yeah, um, one of them is, is my professor when I started as a PhD student, that's Sepp He—he passed away uh, last year, but he really. Inspired me to dive into the science behind things, and he also inspired me very much to look further than just Wageningen. At that time, I was just, you know, in Wageningen, doing mm-hmm. my studies in Wageningen. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, "Yeah, you have to go to uh, abroad and spend some time over there." And that was when I spent my first uh, six months as a PhD student at an institute in Hurley in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great experience, a great team over there, mm-hmm. and I'm very. Thankful also for SIEP for stimulating me to uh, go abroad, right, and experience what uh, what research is there in, in other countries. Mm. Also, that inspired me also to uh, take a postdoc position at another place in the United K- Kingdom, yeah. which, was, which was great. And the other person that's my uh, mentor, basically, from my period in the United K- Kingdom, that's uh, Professor Jim France. He's now uh, retired uh, from University of Guelph. Right. But he also taught me basically how to combine numbers mathematics with biology right and in the end that's now basically my 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 favorite basically i'm someone who likes mathematics indeed that's that that's true but not just for the mathematics as such it's all about how can i link that to biology and in my view uh, you know there's sometimes a bit too many people that just stick to the mathematics are very good in it, mm. but can't translate it to the biology. Or the other way around, you're very good in biology and doing animal experiments, for example, but the numbers don't have a great meaning to you. And what I like, and I really think it, it brings us Further is to combine those two right. and to learn from each other and to combine numbers with, with biology, right. which is also what I teach in my, my class that I give now. It's called Newton Dynamics. And that also the students work with, with models, basically, right. which they link to actual issues in animal nutrition.
0: Right. Another one of my questions, if you were not a scientist, what would you be doing? You'd probably be a mathematician or, or something else?
1: <laughs> oh, um i uh, first of all, I'm, I'm very lucky that I, I had this opportunity to go into science and do what I really like to do. Obviously, not every day is always as fun if you go to the red tape or whatever there is to distract you from the real work. Yeah, what I would probably would also like to do, Matt, uh, maybe surprised, but uh, I would always have loved to start up my own microbrewery. Is that right? Brew my own beer. I mean, you've got some great. IPAs I love IPAs so you got some great IPAs uh, back in America right and uh, yes we do yeah yeah making your own beer would be something that would also ooh, I could have a nice uh, life on that one as well that's <laughs> so, interesting
0: <yeah>. sort of <laughs> sort of as a you know you you have a, a little bit of room in microbiology in your mindset yeah. and you just kind of transfer yeah. it over to the to the beer and uh, i mean not yeah. the different bugs obviously but yeah that's interesting it's well, fascinating right you're, you're fascinated by purpose. how how i guess it's uh microorganisms can benefit man so it's yeah, a,
1: yeah 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 obviously i uh, microbiology is, is definitely one of my favorites uh, for the rumen the beer but there's so many areas <laughs> where microbiology plays such an important role yeah
0: I don't know if I could top that one. The uh, finally, if you had, you know, we get a lot of grad students, and you, you know, we hope to get people that listen to the podcast that maybe um, you know they hadn't thought about science, or or maybe maybe they're in it. Any any advice for those types of people that you know maybe an undergraduate who's kind of listening, or or maybe a grad student who's trying to figure out where to go in terms of their research questions? Any advice that you got, or if you along the way or that might help that type of person to think about things
1: you need some determination obviously first of all it's it's you need to enjoy (laughs) trying to find out how things work hey you need to be curious obviously and i think the best advice i got probably is try to to have controversial attitude to kind of play devil's advocate in what you try to achieve in science, because right. you could probably learn a lot by looking at it, not in the conventional ways mm. or follow your own line of thinking, but try to destroy your own line of thinking if right. you like, yeah. right? Play the devil's advocate. And what is then also very important is don't dismiss old literature, just dive into literature from say the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Be amazed about how diligence and deep diving research at that time right. could be. Um, they didn't have all the techniques, sure, that we have nowadays, all those molecular techniques or whatever. The thorough way they look about a topic and dive into it and work with the hypothesis, mm. I think you can learn a lot from that to look back basically decades ago right. and see what people did at that time and how they Went about in doing science.
0: Right. I think just those pieces of advice were just so spot on. I, um, I always tell my students that it's so important to enjoy what you do. And and science is way too hard to do it if you don't enjoy what you do. You know, you have to enjoy it, you know. And, uh, I tell you, those were tremendous comments. And I'm hopeful that those, listening, we'll take those on board because I could could not agree more. So Jan, I I just wanted to, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time today and I just want to say thank you, okay? Your your enthusiasm and your curiosity just comes through so strongly and your optimism about dairying and where it's going comes through so strongly and um, I, I really appreciate that. So this has been uh, Dairy Digressions, and we've been talking to Jan Dijkstra from Bagenen University, and I would encourage you for those listening that if you enjoy the podcast or would like to leave any feedback, please do so at ADSA at ADSA.org, and also please make sure to like, subscribe, and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to. So with that, Jan, thank you very much. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Matt. It was a pleasure.
0: Want to stay on top of the latest research and industry advances in dairy science? ADSA has you covered with our two open access peer-reviewed journals, the Journal of Dairy Science and JDS Communications. Both journals cover all aspects of dairy production and dairy foods and provide you with the latest and highest quality research papers. Watch for invited reviews and symposia reviews that summarize the most recent advances in the field and get you the knowledge that you need. We just released a special issue of JDS Communications on Advances in Dairy Confertility. The issue contains 14 articles that explore important scholarship on periparturian disease, genetics, nutrition, embryo development, pregnancy loss, and more. Read the full issue at JDScommunion.org. And while you are there, check out the rest of our cutting-edge
1: articles in the Dairy Sciences.